0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our fourth episode of Globally Lit, a podcast on international literature and translation brought to you by the Chu Center for International Writers and Books Across Borders. My name is Matthew Davis, and I'm the founder and director of the Chu Center here at George Mason University. In this episode, we will focus on the collection of short stories called People from Bloomington. The book was originally written in Indonesian by the iconic author Budi Dharma and published back in 1980. It is being released in English through Penguin Classics to mark the 40th anniversary of its publication. And this is the first translation into English. Sadly, Budi Dharma passed away in August 2021 after a memorable and influential literary career as one of Indonesia's most important writers. So the structure of our podcast will be a little different than other episodes. First, I will speak with Indonesian writer Intan Paramedita. She wrote the foreword to People from Bloomington, and she and I will discuss Dharma's illustrious career, how he influenced Indonesian literature and writers from her own generation, and about some of the themes Dharma was exploring in this collection of stories. Next, writer and translator Lily Meyer will speak with Tiffany Sow, the translator of People from Bloomington. Who worked closely with Bodhidharma to translate this iconic text. And finally, we'll hear a review from Eliza Cohen, a bookseller at Potter's House here in Washington, DC, who will be reviewing Anne Carson's If Not Winter, Fragments of Sappho. First, a little context. Bodhidharma was born in Central Java in Indonesia in 1937, and he went on to an illustrious career as one of Indonesia's most influential writers. In 1974, He received a Fulbright scholarship to study for his master's degree in creative writing at the University of Indiana in Bloomington, Indiana. He then received support from the Ford Foundation to study for his PhD in English literature from the same university. He graduated in 1980 and wrote his thesis on Jane Austen. People from Bloomington are a collection of stories that come out of that period of Bodhidharma's life. They are distinctive for their plumbing of human souls and psyches both the dark sides and the lighter, brighter ones that can surprise us during times of crisis. They're all set in Bloomington, and all of them are told through first-person narrators, all of whom, except for one, are actually people from Bloomington. This, of course, raises questions of perspective and cultural appropriation in Bodhidharma's ideas of universal literature, topics of which I look forward to discussing with our first guest, Intan Parameditha, who again wrote the foreword to people from Bloomington. Intan is an Indonesian author and senior lecturer in media and film studies at McGuire University in Sydney. She received her PhD with distinction from New York University in 2014, and her fiction, academic, and activist works focus on the question of travel, immobility, mobility, and power, as well as anti-colonial feminist knowledge production. Her novel, The Wandering, translated from the Indonesian language by Stephen J. Epstein, was long listed for the Stella Prize in Australia and awarded the Tempo Best Literary Fiction in Indonesia, the English Pen Translates Award and the Heim Translation Fund Grant from PEN America. She's the author of the short story collection, Apple and Knife and the editor of Deviant Disciples, Indonesian Women Poets, part of the Translating Feminism series of Tilted Axis Press in the UK. Her essay on the complicated questions around writing about travel Selected for the best American Travel Writing 2021. Intan, welcome to Globally Lit. So glad you're here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's our pleasure. We're really excited to talk with you about, about this book and about Buddhidharma's place in Indonesian literature. And so maybe we can we can start there. Maybe you can give us, I mean, I sort of gave a bare bones bio of Buddhidharma, but maybe you can tell us, you know, where he fits in, in terms of the the pantheon of of, of contemporary Indonesian literature?
1: Yeah, thank you, Matt. So um, he was obviously respected in Indonesian literature. Uh, He won prestigious awards and so on, but his position was a bit um, on the edge. Um, So he wasn't as widely discussed as, I mean, today, writers like Pramudia Anantatur from the left side, or from the other side of the spectrum, uh, Gunawan Muhammad, the poet. And we also had a poet um, who was very famous, Sapan Vijoko Damono, his works are discussed, widely discussed yeah. in, across generations. Um, and he had poems cited on every wedding invitation <laughs> um, yeah but Budi Damo was quite different I think um, he was uh, widely discussed in the 70s when he first came out um, the there was a, a, a very um, prestigious literary magazine called Horison and they had uh, an edition uh, dedicated to his work so he was considered as this new voice of they call it absurdist literature, um, basically literature that explores the um, the weird, the strange, and the and also a little bit um, exploring the dark side uh, of uh, humanity. Um, so he was uh, he was discussed in the '70s as this new absurdist voice, and then he left for the United States uh, to do his uh, master's and PhD. Um, and then um, during the time in the US, uh, he uh, created, he published, no, he, he, he wrote two books, um, People from Bloomington and Olenka, uh, which uh, is a novel. And um, they're quite different from his earlier absurdist um, stories. And the, the absurdist stories were a bit fantastic. Um, you could say a little, there's a little bit of magical realist element there, but the, the, the uh, stories that the novel he produced during his time in the US um, are more grounded in reality. And then in the, in the 80s, people um, still talk about his work, but they're kind of, I think they're kind of confused of the new approach. And, and um, I remember there's uh, someone who's a scholar uh, um, not not a, a scholar focusing on Budi uh, Her name is Asri Saraswati, an Indonesian scholar, and she wrote a thesis on um, Cold War writers uh, hmm. in the U.S. Uh, Cold War Indonesian writers in the U.S. And he uh, she has one chapter on uh, Budi um, and the the responses of people back then uh, were quite interesting. They kind of uh, they they see people from Bloomington as a way of buddhidharma uh, coping with his loneliness, uh, like homesickness as an international student. Uh, but people didn't really explore how the absurdist um, style are, is sort of interwoven in this new way of depicting reality. And that's why in the foreword, um, I mentioned that it's actually, um, you know, a a style where you have this, this, the absurdist meets Jane Austen because sometimes the the realist uh, space is uh, described in a Jane Austen way, you know, very much about mundane reality, people observing, but you can see that these people observing can be quite creepy they right think exactly strange. yeah so yeah so in general i um, i think um people in indonesia they they know that he he produces good work but they don't really dig into um the style they they don't they, they didn't really discuss and then in the 90s early 2000 people simply stopped talking about him i'm not sure why so when i rediscovered buddhidharma there were not many writings about him, um, which is kind of strange. And that's why um, I started to become like um, an evangelist of Dharma's work. <laughs> um, about, yeah, about over a decade ago, I thought, oh, I think we should talk more about uh, Budhidharma, especially people from Bloomington. I, I don't see why we, um, we don't, we just don't talk about it.
0: That's great. That's great. So were you, um, how did you get involved with writing the forward for this book then? Were you asked to do it or did you suggest um, that, that you wanted to write a forward for it?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, Tiffany saw the translator and I are friends. And then Tiffany um, explored uh, works of Bodhidharma after hearing, you know, um, me championing uh, the work and also uh, from Norman Erickson Pasaribu, another author that um, uh, who is really inspired by buddhidharma as well. So both of us are kind of um, promoting uh, buddhidharma's work and therefore uh, Tiffany thought that it would probably be a good idea if I uh, do the, the forward, especially because I I also explore the themes that he explores in cosmopolitanism, and and I write about weird things, but from a different angle. Um, and I thought, yeah, that's like that would be an an honor, and um, and I'm glad that Bodhidharma himself um, uh, approved this uh, decision.
0: Great, great, and what you described a little bit about how Buddhidharma was. Um, mm-hmm was kind of forgotten a little bit for for a, a couple of years or a decade. Yeah. What about writers of your generation people um, that are you know that are that are more your your age that are maybe more cosmopolitan are, are they is budhi and especially you know people from bloomington is that becoming more widely read? How has he influenced people um, and writers of of your generation
1: yeah now with, with the younger generation and especially um, after the uh, you know the, the news that uh, this uh, would be published by uh, uh, Penguin Plastics uh, the, and the younger generation started to look at his work, started to read his work. Um, but I think his influence he had a, a great influence but it, it's kind of limited. like if you are an author who explores, um, the fantastic or the weird, you would probably um, be, to some extent, influenced by Bodhidharma, or you would, um, at least, you you would see his work as um, a work to read as a reference. Uh, so, for instance, um, an old a, a writer who's not from ge- my generation, uh, Seno Gumira Ajidarma, who I also um, uh, interviewed for my foreword he said that Budidharma really taught him how to blur fact and fiction and also by um, uh, foregrounding characters who have nasty thoughts. And and really people don't really um, explore that in Indonesian literature. And that's what I feel because my generation, um, we grew up with literatures that explore the idea of nationhood Mm -hmm. And then, so, and people, um, uh, characters, even though they, they're flawed, uh, the the flaws are not really, I feel like the flaws are not really flaws. They're like, oh, okay, he's afraid of something or he has an affair with, you know, someone, (laughs) another woman or or something. But no, that's not really flaws. Um, People think about bad things. Sometimes people wish um, harm, on other people, um, people are are evil and wicked, and I don't really see that explored in Indonesian literature. And because I tend to write weird stuff, uh, it's easy for me to to be drawn to buddhidharma, And um, as well as some some other writers like um, who are into the fantastic and the weird, um, like Norman Erikson Pasaribu or Eka Kurniawan or Ugoran Prasad.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. But, yeah
1: not yeah sorry
0: no no um, but
1: go it's, ahead. Not, it's not a it's not a a wide influence it's a, like some people are influenced by by booty but not it's not um, um something really huge
0: okay that's that's great to know thank you yeah i think one of the interesting parts about um your foreword is you know you refer to the cohen brothers and david lynch as kind of you know, arti- artistic siblings, if you will, of, of Bodhidharma in terms of their exploration of that dark side, of that sort of, you know, that the the underbelly of human nature that don't, people don't like to talk much about. And and in this collection of stories, um, there are, you know, it's a it's amazing in how many stories there are people that are you know hoping for really violent revenge or that who are you know beginning to try to um, they're. Thinking and and hoping that that um, something bad will happen to somebody else, or thinking bad thoughts about other people. It's it's really quite startling. As you're right, you don't see that on on the page. And one of the things that was interesting to me too about reading this, and you mention it in your in your foreword, and um, Tiffany mentions it in her introduction, is you know, Bodhidharma writing from the perspective of, of people from Bloomington, of 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 Indianaans, Americans, um, and how you know, there is a big discussion right now in, in world literature and literature about, you know, cultural appropriation in terms of who has the right to write about about whom. And one of the things that you and Tiffany both mentioned is that, you know, at least in the past, it was totally acceptable for Western writers to, to write about the East and no one really thought much about it, but it was not appropriate for Eastern writers to write about the West and certainly not putting themselves in Westerners shoes. And yet, Bodhidharma, the, the majority, the vast majority of this collection is just that. And so I wondered what your what your thoughts are on that and, and sort of how Bodhidharma was able to sort of pull this off so successfully.
1: Yeah, so I found that his cosmopolitanism um, can be read in a subversive way um, of course, it's something to be critiqued, and I'm, go- I'm going to talk more about that. Um, but, I mean, from the Western imaginary, like even Frederick Jameson talked about literature as a national allegory. Um, so it's always about the nation, and I think if you read it this way, it becomes like a prescription, and this is something that Bodhidharma um, rejected. He... Um, he claimed cosmopolitanism. He claimed um, the space. Uh, he refused the confinement of you know third world author um, who needs to write about third world issues, and I find it um, very appealing. Also within the that's from the um, the more um, global perspective, from the Indonesian perspective, cosmopolitanism um, for me is is also quite subversive because. I mentioned how people, uh, writers, uh, at at least writers from um, the older generation, they were obsessed with this idea of nationhood. And then I couldn't relate to that idea of nationhood because it was written mainly from the perspective of male Javanese elite um, men. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, elite perspective. it's, there's a lot of um, exploration with Java and Javanese mythology, and as a non-Javanese, I feel like, um, um, is that what the nation is? And so, reading Buddhidharma's cosmopolitan work feels very liberating, and, um, but I also think that, yes, on the one hand, we need to see this cosmopolitanism in a subversive way, that, you know, it's, writers, uh, Western writers, have been writing about us for years and misrepresent uh, us. Um, and, you know, having this work um, is, is very, uh, I think I see a more playful dimension here. But at the same time, we also um, need to look at his cosmopolitanism in, uh, in a more critical way, that um, he, he was a product of his generation. Um, he, his cosmopolitanism was made possible by the whole, you know, funding politics during the Cold War to um, sort of um, promote American culture to the rest of the world. Um, and, uh, buddhidharma's perspective could be, you know, it, it could be quite universal and, and therefore I thought it, it could be um, uh it could be dangerous if we if we glorify that because uh universal humanism was the value that that um became dominant after 1965 in Indonesia when uh, the people associated with communism or they were they were murdered and and writers um who were uh part of the leftist group were uh, in prison, including Pramudya Anantatur, so he was part of the of the of the dominant stream of you know universal humanism, um, uh, the victory of universal humanism in as the dominant frame in Indonesia. So he was really part of that, and therefore I think even though we it, it's playful, it's subversive. We also need to see that he's he was really part of um, of his generation.
0: Great, great. That's really interesting. Let's um, let's move from um, more general conversation about Buddha and sort of um, what he was doing with people from Bloomington, and focus on a on a story or two. And and I think you know, there are seven stories in this collection. And I'd love for you and Tan to sort of um, share with us your your favorite story of the collection and and why it's your favorite story.
1: Yeah, my favorite story is called "The Family." M. This is about a man who is obsessed with a family uh, of M or all members of the family, um, uh, their first names start with the letter M. And then it's just, it becomes really weird because he wishes um, harm uh, on these people. He At first he feels annoyed um, and then he starts doing things that um, that are not uh, um, th- that are quite evil. Um, they they wish them harm, and actually they they suffer at, at the end. But um, I really like this story because I think it's a, it's it's a weird way of this character to make a connection. Uh, I'm thinking about just creepy people who. <laughs> Who, can, who are lonely because he, he is lonely in that apartment building. And the, the family is the only, only way for him to sort of connect to, to think about a wider social sphere. And um, it's a weird way of making connection. Uh, and he becomes so obsessed with this family. And also I think it goes back to our conversation about how people uh, think about ugly things I think this is a, an example of a story where you have the, the character uh, wishing evil on other people, and they uh, and he, he gets really obsessed, and and I guess he's jealous because well they're together and he's all alone, and I in a way we, we sympathize with him in a weird way, but we also hate him. Um, I I feel that it's a it's. It's an extraordinary uh, study of human character because I, I do think that sometimes I feel that way sometimes I am um, I can I can think in a very dark way
0: yeah it's interesting I, you, you mentioned um, you know the ugly side of, of life and, and, and human connection and I think you know for me reading these stories I think that idea of, of human connection really is is crucial and sort of people, Wanting it, needing it, and when they're not, when they don't get it in the way that they want it, sort of turning against the people they were trying to get it from in the first place, or, or sort of lashing out. But then, all, off, not always in stories, but sometimes coming to a return to sort of wanting to have that connection. And I think you know one of my favorite stories, and, and one that I found very interesting, was was Ores, um, the one I think did right before or after Family M, and and just like. Um, family m it really uses uh, this idea of the grotesque it, it's about this this couple who you know, the way that their passion is depicted is almost sort of animalistic and they you know they in fact the narrator describes them as animals um a couple of times but it's you know it is uh they have a a, a child who is i for lack of a better word either deformed or disabled or or something uh, about him that is you know, not quote unquote normal. And there's a great deal of shame they feel because of that. And so they they move around to different places. Um, they lose out on different connections with people, they're, you know, their 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 child is they're concerned, you know, for him. But you know, towards the end of the story, and, and in fact, they, they even go so far, I won't spoil anything, but they even at the end of the story, there is sort of this this sense of of. Of universalism, these universal sort of desires that that I that people or or beings or thing have to to want to connect. Do you think, in some ways, um, when you talk about Bodhidharma's Dharma's universal literature, is that what he was trying to get at? Is that that all people have these same sorts of of desires and feelings and emotions? Is that is that accurate? in what he was aiming for is there something even more complicated than that that he was striving for?
1: Yeah, I think he does. He explores this um, universal emotion of, uh, particularly in that story, of shame, um, and uh, but if we can also see it from a more contemporary lens now that I'm, uh, I've thought about it, um, because the 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 family is very much different from what we think of um, the. Today's uh, ideal productive able-bodied <laughs> family, right? And they are the the husband and wife are connected through lust only, and that's it. Um, right. They they don't, they don't make plans. They uh, <laughs> they they're not productive uh, in a neoliberal sense. Uh, and and yet this disability is something that keeps coming back, like, and forcing. Um, it's like, look at me, and it becomes highly visible in a stubborn way. I feel like that we can probably read that as, um, as an intervention to our idea of the normal. It's a statement <laughs> against um, neoliberal notion of, of the normal and, uh, and uh, able-bodied. Um, but at the same time, he doesn't want us to, fee- to pity the, the outcast or to pity this, this child. Uh, he avoids melodrama, and I think maybe that's why um, the emotion is really raw. Like he, he, um, he is trying to, to to kill the baby and and he does all the horrible things. But we could see that it's it's a desperate attempt. Um, and I, I do feel that there's part of the story that that takes side with the marginal and the outcast, and I, I think that's the appeal.
0: Yeah, that's a great reading. That's so interesting. Um and, and you you did you did t- spoil some of what I was trying not to spoil. So. <laughs> that's that's quite all right. Um uh, you know it's interesting. I I'm curious as to we talked a little bit about um, you know, the the influence that um, that this book in Dharma may have on on writers like yourself. Maybe we can even sort of widen the lens a little bit more and just sort of, you know, for, for, you know, listeners that are not familiar with Indonesian literature, maybe you can sort of tell us a little bit about, um, about what's happening in Indonesian, Indonesian literature right now. And especially, you know, maybe what sort of the challenges are with regards to translation um, from Indonesian literature into English and and whether or not, um, you know, there's, there's what, what kind of representation does Indonesian Literature have you know, in a place like the United States.
1: Yeah. Um, I think there are more uh, books in translation available now. Um, so uh, Tiffany Sao, the translator of the book, was just uh, long listed. Um, uh, she and the author Norman Erickson, uh, they were long listed for the International Booker Prize, and hopefully that uh, led to more. To higher visibility of Indonesian literature, but but in general, I think that um, it it still hasn't achieved the status like um, Japanese literature or Korean literature where people would really um, find you know I I want to read the latest Korean literature, especially after Squid Game, or <laughs> people people are looking for, actively looking for um, Japanese literature. It hasn't achieved that status. And um, Indonesia doesn't have enough funding for translation. So that's probably uh, uh, making it worse. But, but I think initiatives here and there, uh, there are independent initiatives to promote Indonesian literature outside Indonesia, they're still ongoing. And uh, I, I think we can have more
2: hopes there.
0: Yeah, great, great. Um, well, thank you Anton, very much for um, discussing with me, people from Bloomington and in your work um, as a writer and, and writing the forward to this. Um, I thought that the collection was really great. I'm looking forward to um, to hearing from, from Lily and from um, Tiffany about the translation, but I wanna thank you again for joining us. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much, Matt. It was a great conversation.
0: Great, thank you. And next, we will hear from Lily Meyer as she interviews Tiffany Tsao about her translation from People from Bloomington. All
3: right, Tiffany Tsao, welcome to Globally Lit. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about translating Bodhidharma's People from Bloomington. I would love for you to start by telling me about your first encounter and your first impressions of this book. I think
4: I'm trying to remember. I- the very first encounter was actually, um, I'd heard it, I'd seen it mentioned, because I was doing research at the time when I was uh, academic, I was doing research on um, regional or local color Indonesian literature. And I had come across some essays by Budi because he's, uh, he's a literary critic as well. And I happened to see that he would written two books set in Bloomington, Indiana, So one is a novel called Olenka, but one is uh, this short story collection called um, Orang Orang Bloomington or People from Bloomington. And I just thought to myself, that's really interesting. Um, I really need to find these someday and read them. And then uh, I never did. And then um, I stopped being an academic and then I was uh, visiting my father in Jakarta and I was in the books, uh, the bookstore there, and it happened to be um, around the time when the third reprint, the third edition of uh, Bodhidharma's Dharma's *People from Bloomington* uh, in Indonesia was being released. And so it happened to be on, you know, the book display in the main part of the store. And I was like, "Oh, this is great because I've been wanting to read this. I've heard about it, and here it is. Um, I don't have to, you know, look through the library or the stacks or order it specially." Because it can be hard to find those kinds of things. And so I bought it, and I read it. And yeah, I was just so excited because my first impression was that they were just really, um, I don't know, mesmerizing stories uh, from a character perspective, and they were just so strange. And I just thought it was so interesting what he was seemed to be trying to do with them. And I just thought, it'd be so great if these were translated. And I I thought to myself, he's a really big writer. Surely they must be translated. And it turned out they hadn't been translated, actually. Um, One story had been translated, but um, the journal was already out of print. And I just thought to myself, wow, this is great. Um, So that was actually a big thing at the back of my mind for a long time. Someday I'd like to translate these stories. And then one of my authors, uh, Norman Erickson Basaribu, who's, um, I've translated two books from him. And I've told him about this. And he said, yeah, that would be a great idea. And one day he said, oh, you know, um, I happened to meet Woody Dharma at a event. And I was just thinking, do you want to translate still um, people from Bloomington, then I can maybe try and arrange something and set up a meeting and you can meet him and ask permission. And yeah, everything went from there.
3: that takes me directly to my next question, which is what your working relationship was like. What was he like as a collaborator?
4: He was just very, I don't want to say cooperative because that sounds very passive, but he was just very proactive and very encouraging. Um, It was really nice. Uh, We were communicating at first via email, but he, you know, because he's a, I think, from a literary scholar background as well. So he gave me a lot of material when we met in Surabaya for me to obtain formal permission. By that time, he'd already brought a memory drive with all of the like a lot of other material that I might need on it. You know, because his English is, you know, was, is obviously good because he did uh, graduate study in, in um, the univers- at Indiana University Bloomington. He uh, read the drafts, you know, he gave feedback correspond I would I was able to ask him some background about the stories or if anything if there was anything I was curious about I would ask him about that and then when it came to writing the introduction the introductory essay for the collection you know he just gave me a lot of material that would have been very hard for me to find myself just because um, of the way you know doing research with non-English language sources works it can be really difficult so he you know, sent me lots of PDFs that he already had and references on his own work and his life and etc. So that was very useful. Yeah, it was really great, actually. Um, and I miss him because he
3: he died in, in August of COVID. And that was very sad. Yeah, that's sad that he's not that you don't get to celebrate the publication together. I'm sorry about that.
4: I think, you know, I mean, he knew it was coming out. But I do remember he had asked, Oh, why is it coming out? So not late, but, you know, um, what is it? Like, it's it's a long time until it's going to get cut to until it's going to come out. And so then I, you know, I think to myself, oh, it would come out earlier. I don't know. How do you plan these things? Yeah.
3: yeah, I mean, that is the perennial frustration of publishing, just having to wait for things to appear once you're excited about them and you know they're coming. Um, so I do want to talk about your introduction, which I really loved. There's a moment in it when you cite Bodhidharma describing the writing process as one of dissatisfaction, which certainly I think of writing as unsatisfying often, but I especially find that translation, I'm often dissatisfied with what I'm doing. And I, first of all, am curious about whether for you translation is also a process of dissatisfaction. And second, I'd love to know how, if you have strategies how you overcome your translator's discontent. Ooh.
4: Yeah, I would say that there are dissatisfying times in a translation, but I think the reward is always when you get over that and you finally arrive at a translation that you find to be immensely satisfying. But, you know, I as as you probably experience yourself, I can spend days or weeks thinking about one phrase or and trying to retranslate it and retranslate it. Or sometimes the worst part is when you finally think of something and you're like, this is great. And you put it down. And then two days later you're like, what was I thinking? This is a horrible solution. This doesn't work at all. And then you're it's a, back to square one. Yeah. And you just sort of worry and pick at it. I don't think I have any tips because I feel like my tip is just to keep banging my mm-hmm. head against it until it breaks. And I feel like surely there must be some better way to do that. Yeah. I don't know.
3: Maybe there isn't. I mean, if Dharma was dissatisfied with stories as amazing as these, maybe there's just no exit from dissatisfaction.
4: Yeah, maybe. Maybe it is just a way it's maybe it's a barometer, you know, because if you were satisfied, it would have been too easy. And I think there is that part of my personality that thinks if something is too easy, it's not good enough or, you know, like that's that's also not very healthy. <laughs> revealing all of my unhealthy um thinking habits you know like oh maybe if it's because I guess yeah if you think it's easy or if you're like oh yeah I did the best job ever then you don't keep trying yeah yeah so
3: yeah. one challenge that I imagined when I was reading your introduction was reading the bit where you talk about Dharma considering these stories universal which is certainly something that I agree with as a reader, but I began wondering about the experience of translating towards universality, trying to create a translation that has a feeling of this is anywhere. This could be, as he said, people from Dublin, people from Paris. Did you find ways to translate towards the universal? Is that possible?
4: I don't, I'm trying to think. I don't think I did. I basically tried just to approximate the closest feeling to I guess how I felt reading them so I'm not sure if I understood the question completely because I guess we're all embodied so yeah it's kind of like even if you're trying to be universal how can you be and then it's in English which is not the universe so
3: yeah I suppose it's a question very informed by the fact that I translate from Spanish into English and there are so many versions of Spanish I always try to emphasize the regionality and the specificity of, oh, now I'm translating from Peruvian Spanish. Now I'm translating from Chilean Spanish. And I've never done the reverse. I've never tried to be universal instead of regional, but I do realize that that's a very specific way of asking or way of thinking about this question that may not be relevant.
4: No, I see what you mean. Um, I think maybe it's because, let's see. So these are, stories that were obviously written in, in the, they were they're written in Indonesian, but they're written about Americans. So in a way and it is interesting because Woody Dharma is known for using like very specific Javanese terms. So it is very Javanese inflected like Indonesian and it's also Indonesian from a very specific time from that, that time period he was writing. So uh, nowadays it would be like more old-fashioned Indonesian. But I think what I did try to capture was sort of the ethos of it, which is, you know, he didn't want, you know, like the stories are meant to be read as if the characters are just speaking the way they speak, right? We're not supposed to be thinking, okay, we're in Bloomington, Indiana, and for some reason all these characters are speaking in Indonesian with like Javanese words thrown in, right? They're um, Like they're meant to be, you're supposed to read it and kind of translate yourself in your head. I guess into you know what American language would be like, and you know there are points right where it it I think it is obvious in the in the original where he's trying to mimic that way that maybe an American would talk or way someone in the Midwest would talk. So um, the older characters will often address the younger characters as muda um, or literally "young child," but it's kind of like you know "son, listen here, son," or you know like that. And I think he's trying to emulate uh, or uh, mimic that kind of speech pattern, right? Because that's not something that you would have in the Indonesian. So there's enough stuff like that, which made me feel like the best way to faithfully translate or the best way to be faithful to the spirit of the work would be to try and translate it into what I felt would be the register for midwestern um, Indianans at, you know, like at that, at that time, like if that makes any sense.
3: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and brings me to another question, which is that I noticed how many of these stories are interested in age gaps and in playing with the tensions and the power dynamics that come with a young person interacting with someone, often in this collection, 40 maybe years their senior. And I often, as a translator and a writer, have found myself playing with the language of age. Were were you conscious of age in translation beyond things like the young child or son phrasing? Did you ever find yourself trying to make a character sound old or sound young in a way that worked in English?
4: Yes, definitely. So for a lot of the more crotchety uh, older characters, I tried to make them sound, you know, very specifically a bit more crotchety or or grumpy because (laughs) often Often the older characters, um, not always, but often the older, older characters um, in, these, in this collection are, are just a bit grumpier. <laughs> so there was definitely that, that aspect as well. But um, yeah, more tone.
3: Yeah, I mean, the grouchiest story of all is the old man with no name, which I found tonally so impressive in the way that it walks a fine line between being very dark and sounding very matter of fact, that balance, I imagine, must have been very hard to translate. How did you avoid being too dark or being too matter of fact in your drafts? Well,
4: I don't know. I mean, you know sometimes right it's in the work, and then it just comes out in the translation right it's there there is that I, I think there is that, and i don't know i would I would almost say that like it's all woody dharma at that point and it's just you know you trying to or me trying to you know um replicate that that feeling because you're right that that is um one characteristic I'd, I'd say even like of all of all of them right there's a sort of darkness and there's there's this just very matter-of-fact way of stating it and, and i think partly buddhidharma does do that by um you know there's some repetition or like attention to like sequential detail. So things get phrased. I guess a, a, sim, a similar thing would be kind of like, you know, maybe come, you know, like there's sort of the relation of detail and just minor detail in a sequence of what's going on. But then there's sort of underlying there, that, there's that sort of more, that darker absurdity and all of that. And I feel like that just comes naturally, perhaps in the way um, buddhidharma structured uh, the 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 structure and of of the way he writes and maybe that as a result you know um, I know I was trying to translate a lot of that that structure that um, not repetition but that sort of matter of fact uh, pl- proliferation of you know and and uh, of detail and of sequence and then this and then this and then this and I think that just sort of naturally um, came together with that.
3: Were there ever times when you felt that you had to change sentence structure, change syntax, really move things around in order to convey the ethos or the vibe of what he was doing?
4: Yes, I think so. But I think that's true with all with all works, right? Not just buddhidharma, but you know, there's an effect that is achieved in the original language and you want to convey that same effect. Um, but just the way the construction might work in English, um, you just have to move things around. So perhaps, um, so Indonesian tends to favor the passive um, construction and English tends to favor the active. So it just, you know, you end up, right? If you want to have something that sounds rhythmic the way it is in the Indonesian, you move it around and you kind of reverse it in the English so that it re- achieves that same rhythm, um, but it's just almost reversed. So yeah, that's just something I notice I do a lot. In my work or something's funny in Indonesian but then you can't you know if you keep the structure you can't convey that same humor you really have to sort of think about like okay well the spirit of this is the humor right so how do I convey like the humorous impact of this particular sentence yeah,
3: yeah these stories are so funny and I find humor both among the most difficult and the most rewarding things to translate and I've found that if I have played with the sentence too long, I can no longer tell if it's funny. Do you show drafts to other people to gauge if they're funny? Would you ask Bodhidharma to tell you if he'd gotten his jokes right? How do you handle the challenge of humor?
4: I actually, I think, okay, this sounds really big headed. I think humor is one of my strong points. Um, with my serious writing, that ne- doesn't necessarily come across all the time. But you know, way back in the day, I wanted to be a humor writer or something like that. And yeah, I don't know. I think I just, I I don't feel I have to show drafts to people to tell if it's funny or not. Like, I think I have a pretty good gauge of that. So that's nice. Whether I show drafts or not, I do did show Bodhidharma all of the drafts. Um, and I did consult with one other um, good friend that I have uh, just for some of the earlier drafts to say, like, what do you think of this and get their opinion because they know Indonesian and English as well, and that was really useful, and that gave me um, sort of a guiding light for going ahead.
3: There's one structural or thematic thing that I find especially funny in this collection, which is that there are these two stories, Joshua Karabish and Mrs. Elberstam, who have narrators who steal poems from the title characters and kind of pass them off as their own, which I think is a hilarious conceit for a writer to use twice. But it also really made me think about the impersonation that goes along with translation. You know, every time I translate, I feel a little bit like I'm impersonating or stealing something from the writer or dressing up as the writer, maybe, which just made me curious if you felt special sympathy with either of those stories narrators.
4: Yeah, Joshua Karabish and oh, Mrs. Elberhart. Yes, yes, Mrs. Elberhart.
3: Elberhart. Um, oh, it's okay. <laughs> but um
4: <laughs> It was interesting because during, I'm supposed to be writing an essay on it and it's late and I feel really bad about it, but I've been trying to process, I guess the process of translating this and because it happened during the pandemic, right? All of a sudden two stories in there's this big pandemic and it was really, in some ways I felt like we were being sucked into a reality that was reflected in people from Bloomington because people from Bloomington, Right? There's all these themes of sickness and all of these themes of you know older people dying and I do remember when the pandemic hit and you know we were just learning like okay this new virus is going around this is what you need to do to protect yourself and all of that. Um, I did text Woody Dharma to ask to say sort of like oh just be careful there's something going around here's some guidelines from the World Health Organization please be careful. And he's like, yes, yes, don't worry. But yeah, there was part of me when translating Mrs. Elberhart, I was actually, you know, so struck by this idea of, you know, the the narrator writes a poem and it's clear from what he says that he's specifically like deliberately writing a not very good poem because he doesn't know how to write poetry. And he's passing it off as Mrs. Elberhart's, even though Mrs. Elberhart has already passed away in order to preserve her memory. And it did strike me like very, I don't know, in a sort of horrified way. I, I felt very horrified at the time to feel like this is almost like reality. I feel, but I felt like, okay, well, Bodhidharma is still alive, even you know, so but I was like, what, what would happen if he died? You know, God forbid what happened if he died. And then I would be left in the same position as this narrator, like kind of with this work that is Bodhidharma's. I mean, it's not exactly the same because it is Woody Dharma's, but yeah. And that was just really like weird to me. And then of course the worst happened and he did pass away in August. And I just felt, yeah, just really strange about it. Not like I was, it's not like Joshua Karabish, right? Where he passes off the work as his own, but it's this kind of thing with Mrs. L with that, that story where he create, you know, I created this thing that was meant to, that ended up being sort of a, testament, testament, or, you know, something for him to preserve Dharma's posterity after he passed away, even though it was supposed to be something that we were working on and would celebrate um, together, right, as author and translator. So yeah, that was strange.
3: Yeah, strange and sad.
4: Sorry, that was very long.
3: No, no, I'm just, I'm thinking about how much I like that story and how much I like the collections general interest in characters who want to imagine their way into other people's houses or apartments or lives. Um, To me, that's kind of the fiction writing impulse in general. And I love that he brings that impulse into the plots of his stories and often makes it quite sinister. Many of his characters are creeps, which I imagine (laughs) that creepiness must have been very fun to translate.
4: Yes, it was so fun to translate. And it was so fun to translate even the delusion. It's this weird thing, right? Where the the characters, they hate other people, but they're still drawn to other people and they can't leave the other people alone. And then, you know, there are all these little hints that are just so brilliant, you know, in Dharma's work, like, you know, the, the narrator of the old man with no name. And, you know, he gets so lonely to the point where he's like, And then I started calling up people, you know, just randomly. And then I began calling the weather station Then I called the supermarket to ask if they had anything. And they were like, leave me alone. And it's just this proliferation of details that leads you to realize like, wow, this is a very lonely life. He's living a very lonely life. The neighbors around him are just not friendly. No one is friendly. Right. And that sets the stage, of course, for what happens with the old man with no name
3: wish I could, I don't want to give away what happens with the old man with no name, because it's the first, it's the first story in the collection, it would just be such a shame to spoil it for readers. But there's terrific suspense in that story, I think, building up to the ultimate interaction with the old man with no name, let's say. Is it, I have never translated suspense, is that especially challenging?
4: Okay, I I would say I don't think so, because it's already inbuilt. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as, as a my writer side, it's more challenging to write the suspense, but I feel the pace is already built into it when you're translating because, you know, the, um, the pace is, is there, right? You're just translating the pace that's already set out.
3: Do you feel that you have learned writing techniques that you will bring into your own fiction from people from Bloomington?
4: I feel like I tend to learn a lot of techniques from everything I translate. So I think that includes people from Bloomington. I think um, being a translator has made me pay much more attention to the rhythm of my work. Um, So, because rhythm, you know, when you do, when I translate, I have just become such a stickler for rhythm now. I will read a paragraph again and again to get the next sentence the right, exactly the right length. And I think that's something I really did not pay attention to that much at all before I became a translator. So that's something I'm very grateful for in terms of, you know, thinking about how translating has uh, enhanced my own writing.
3: That's interesting to me because I've had precisely the same experience. I don't think I knew how to do rhythm at all before I began to translate. And now I'm very, very attuned to it.
4: Yeah, it's funny, right? Because sometimes even now with my own writing, I've just become, I'd say when I, in my first pieces of writing, there would be a flow, like I would just sort of get carried away and write a whole lot. But now it's almost like it makes me slower because I'm like, that sentence is too long. It needs to be cut. It needs to be rephrased. I can't add this detail. How will I add the details so it doesn't interrupt the flow? Yeah, it's made me much slower, but I think I hopefully better. I don't know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think for me, it certainly made me both slower and better. So I imagine that that imagine that that is, if not universally true, true for a lot of people. I do want to go broad briefly again before I let you go, Um, just to ask about the part of your introduction in which you write about the ways people from Bloomington complicates debates about cultural appropriation by reversing the direction in which power moves. In the U.S., I think we have not spoken enough about that in contemporary literary debates. And I would love to know your take as a translator on power and ethics in literature. What kind of power does a translator have? What kind of power do editors who commission translations have? Now I'm being yeah. vague again, but I'd love to know your thoughts about that as relate, as they relate to people from Bloomington.
4: Yeah, no, that, that is something I have thought about um, and thought about in all of the debates and conversations that people have been having about translators. I think that was the one thing that was missing for me from um, the name, the translator debate mm-hmm. that has been happening because I couldn't put my finger on it for the longest time. I was like, of course we should name translators. Of course we should name translators. What, what's the big deal? But then I thought, to my to then um, I think I saw, well, you know, Twitter is good for something sometimes. <laughs> I you saw uh, something, a thread that was like, oh, you know, well, a lot of trans the translators who do get names. So it's not just naming all the translators, right? Some translators are more prominent than others. And that did lead me to think like, yeah, it's true that there are some translators where all of a sudden, I guess they do become celebrities and translators who don't. So the question is what power dynamics are at play there. right? Um, so the quote unquote bridge translator, right? Versus the um, person who's, I don't know, doing the latest translation of the Odyssey. <laughs> right, um, in their own way. And that's like like a very big gulf, right? And I think also, I feel like there hasn't been much uh, talked about in terms of the kind of literature that's being translated. And, you know, so like French literature, for example, I, I would say has a higher standing, maybe uh, culturally, more cultural pull, uh, seen as more desirable, more cultured, more blah, blah, right, than, you um, you know, I don't know, just for example, right, uh, literature from Southeast Asia, from a lot of Southeast Asian countries, it just doesn't, you know, people read French literature and they're like, oh, insight, right, but people read Southeast Asian literature because they're like, I want to find out about Southeast Asia, I don't know anything about Southeast Asia, where is Southeast Asia, right, so these are very different things, right, and so I feel that also needs to be addressed in terms of how that translates for translation, because Yeah, like so a translator compared to the author that they translate, like, let's say Proust, right? So the translator of Proust, you're like, okay, well, Proust is dead. That's not the best. But, you know, Proust is like, Proust has pull. Everyone knows Proust, right? People might not know his translator, even if you talk about the translator. Um, But for, you know, like a quote unquote, you know, developing country, if a translator um, translates the author from there, and naturally the translator might be let's say more accessible for interviews or all of that because they speak english as opposed to that author then i can see a situation where the translator may become more famous than the author and that's not actually necessarily fair either so it's not just a matter of oh you know this poor translator has now been elevated to from their place of relative obscurity to to stardom but the reverse might happen where you know the author might you know, like you actually probably in that case might might want more attention for the author than the translator. And I do feel like, for example, um, you know, I translate Norman Erickson Basaribu. We were both long-listed for the Booker, which was exciting the, the, um, recently. But um, I, that, that's something I'm conscious of because if I get interviews for me, I'm like, why aren't, you know, they may not be interviewing Norman because they may assume he doesn't know English when he does. Mm-hmm. But it's like, what assumptions are there, right? So then I become the face of Norman, potentially, right? And I I don't want that, right? I want Norman to have fame in in, in his own right. So it's just a bit weird. So that's something I think about.
3: Yeah, well, in that case, well, congratulations, I should say, first of all. But in that case, I imagine there's also the difficulty of having to explain, oh, no, you want to interview Norman, you should go talk to Norman. That's another bit of work for you as a translator that's not, people might not imagine as part of the translator's role.
4: Yeah, I think so. And I think there is that part of the translator's role. I mean, depending on who you translate, depending what you translate, right? But um, I feel like it's now become a bit, not unfashionable, that people are like, well, what is it? Translators need to start being more loud for themselves and claim their own space. I think that is true in many cases. But I feel also like there are some spaces where a translator might need to say, like, look at the author. The author is cool, too. I'm translating their work. Yeah. And I, I, I do feel that's something that needs to be taken into account as well. It's not just all about. I think I think humans are, are binary creatures. And I think we tend to shift from one extreme to another when I think maybe things need to be taken on a case-by-case basis. You know? Yeah
3: certainly one of the kinds of literature that I have most infrequently seen translated into English for American audiences is fiction that looks at Americans. And I was initially excited to read people from Bloomington for precisely that reason. I was just so happy to see a book being translated that looked at Americans, not from outside, you know, from the very center of the country but from a different language. And then, of course, I was excited as soon as I began reading it because it's so creepy and funny and good. I just feel very lucky as an American reader that you translated it, Um, and thank you.
4: Yeah, I was really excited about it too for all those reasons, yeah.
3: Are you going to translate any more of his work? Do you know?
4: I'm hoping so. Uh, So I think we'll just see how things go. I really very much like translating his work. So we'll, we'll see, fingers crossed.
3: Oh, fingers crossed here also.
0: Next, we hear from Eliza Cohen from Potter's House here in DC, who will be reviewing Anne Carson's If Not Winter, Fragments of Sappho.
2: Translation is a tricky project at even the best of times. With even the lightest and most casual prose, a translator has to consider clarity, style, and of course, intercultural comprehension. These challenges are only compounded when taking on poetry. As I'm writing this during National Poetry Month, I thought I'd take a look at one of the most well-regarded poets, from her time all the way down to ours. Today I'm looking at the 10th muse herself, Sappho of Lesbos specifically at a personal favorite, if not Winter, a collection of fragments translated by Anne Carson. Carson, being both a poet and a classicist, is well suited to this sort of thoughtful work, and she does not disappoint. A particularly enriching part of this edition comes from the extensive notes that are available for just about every fragment. Carson explains how and why she chose a particular word for a particular piece. While If Not Winter is a bilingual book, the Greek on one page with the English facing, such information is much appreciated for those of us without a background in the classics. If Not Winter also contains further notes on the translation, why Carson made the choices she did and why those choices are so important. Carson notes that she has chosen the most clear and simple language possible in effort to preserve Sappho's own voice. The effect is striking. Each work is delicate, deliberately elegant, is something to be savored. It's an effect emphasized by the way Carson has chosen to arrange each fragment. When we read poetry, we experience the music of language visually. And so the translator poet has a responsibility to preserve the cadence of the poem, not only for the ear, but for the eye. Lewis Carroll's The Mouse's Tale, appearing in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, is the most extreme example. But any poem will change radically depending on where and how it appears upon the page. Looking at Sappho's fragments, Carson notes that she has occasionally adjusted text to give us a sense of the poem's tone. It's worth remembering that, as Carson herself notes, Sappho's work was lyric. It would have been experienced as song. A well-placed line break, a downward slope in text, all give the reader a sense of rhythm and grace, qualities that could have easily been lost. Then there's Carson's way of highlighting blank space. Though Sappho has been the subject of praise for millennia, we actually have only a handful of her complete poems. The vast majority of her work we found in fragments and in the citations of other authors. Carson has included brackets of emptiness in most of the fragments. She explains that she does not want the reader to, in her own words, Miss the drama of trying to read a papyrus torn in half or riddled with holes or smaller than a postage stamp. Brackets imply a free space of imaginal adventure. This brilliant preservation of loss, of absence, creates a truly beautiful, almost reverential atmosphere around the poems themselves. They become heavy with the knowledge of what is missing, like a thick metal coin sitting in the palm of your hand. It's a reminder of just how far these poems have come to reach us down through millennia, despite such marvelous work, I find myself mildly frustrated by my own lack of understanding. This is through no fault of Carson's. I will never hear Sappho's work as the poet had intended. No matter how much watered down wine I drink or frankincense I burn, there is context lost to me as a woman living worlds away. It's a wistful reminder of the translator's challenges. In the case of ancient poetry, they must bring words across not only language and culture, but time as well. The enormity of such a task is breathtaking. What Carson has done breathtaking work indeed is through these translations that Sappho's words become prophecy. We remember Sappho even here in another time.
0: That wraps up our fourth episode of Globally Lit. Thanks to Intan, Lily, Tiffany, and Eliza for participating and to Anna Thorne at Books Across Borders. A very special thanks to Martin Mitchell, our producer, editor, and sound engineer of this episode. Globally Lit is part of the Watershed Lit podcast network and co-produced by the Choose Center for International Writers at George Mason University and Books Across Borders. You can visit our websites at choosecenter.gmu.edu and booksacrossborders.com. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back soon with our fifth episode of Globally Lit. But for now, I'm Matt Davis saying bye-bye.